Hello and welcome to The Green Hornet from otrgold.com. This episode will begin after a brief message from our sponsors. X3, X3, Sentinel X3, now the most refreshing drink in the world, Orange Crush, presents The Green Hornet. the biggest of all game, public enemies who try to destroy our America. With his faithful valet Cato, Brick Reed, daring young publisher, matches wits with the underworld, risking his life that criminals and racketeers within the law may feel its weight by the sting of the Green Hornet. Now ride with Britt Reed in the thrilling adventure of Ceiling on Crime. The Green Hornet strikes again. The adventures of the Green Hornet are brought to you by Orange Crush, the world's leading orange drink that tastes better naturally. Orange Crush is flavored with the juice of fresh, tree-ripened Valencia oranges, so naturally it tastes better. Always keep delicious Orange Crush handy in your refrigerator. At your dealers, get the Orange Crush Handy Pack. Six bottles of Orange Crush in a handy carrying case. Only three persons in the city knew that the young publisher of the Daily Sentinel, Britt Reed, was the Green Hornet. They were Reed's valet, Cato, his secretary, Lenore Case, and Police Commissioner James Higgins, Reed's close friend. Britt Reed and Commissioner Higgins had met for lunch at their downtown club. As they finished dining, Higgins glanced at his watch. Oh, I have an appointment at the Federal Building, Reed. I'd better hurry along. Are you still trying to help the government in tracking down the bootleg ring? Yes, but it's more than a ring, Reed. There's a vast organization working. They're making their own alcohol, bottling the stuff, and selling the rotten mixtures for half the price you'd pay at a licensed store. The health of millions is in danger from the poison those criminals make. And in the bargain, our government's losing tax revenue in the millions. You uh, haven't come across any leads yet, huh? No, not yet. But if I didn't know that Schmiggy Milton and his bootleg mob had faded after Prohibition, I'd say they were behind this outbreak of lawlessness. It's almost as bad as the 1920s, Reed. If we don't nip matters soon, it'll be much worse. Back in his office, Reed was handed a letter by Lenore Case, who, with Michael Axford, waited beside his desk as he read the contents. It was from a Mrs. Effie Adams of 984 Stone Avenue, a widow. Her apartment was managed by the M.K. Realty Associates. The legislative ceilings on rent had been lifted, and the tenants of 984 Stone Avenue received a rental increase of 100%. As a result, all the other families in the building moved out, but Effie Adams refused to pay the increase or to move, unless forced to do so. She wanted the Daily Sentinel to expose the owner and his agents. Reed finished the letter. A thing like this is outrageous. Yet with the repeal of rent ceilings, an owner may charge whatever he likes. Isn't there something you can do, Mr. Reed? I doubt it but I'll try. No landlords that I know of up there rent that much. You're right, Michael. They've been very fair. The Apartment and Realty Owners Association members own the greatest part of all properties in the city. 
They agreed when ceilings were lifted not to take advantage of the situation. And they haven't. I know that much. I'll call them. Reed telephoned and learned that the M.K. Realty Company managing the property was headed by a non-member of the real estate board. His name was Martin Keesby, and his business record was one that had brought him into the courts many times in the past. Axford, how would you like to do a little research work on Martin Keesby and this rent increase? I'm your man, Reed. What'll I do? Interview Keesby. Find out why he raised rent so high in that particular house. When you've done that, you and Clicker Benny go to 984 Stone Avenue. See Mrs. Adams. Take pictures of the premises. Interview anyone else there. Martin Keesby, smooth and arrogant, tried to get rid of Michael Axford at once. I have no interest in what your filthy rag may think. If people can't afford to pay the rent, they get out. It's as simple as that. Nobody could afford to pay that much of an increase. And they wouldn't if they could find another place. The poor people who live there... Are no concern of mine. Mr. Axford, I have no time to waste with your sob stories. Please leave. Axford, furious at being rebuffed, slammed the door after him as he left. Then Keesby made a telephone call. Schmiggy, I think we'll have newspaper people hounding us about that Stone Avenue deal. I'm afraid about those crates. Have some of your men get over there right away to guard them. Michael Axford was fuming as he entered his car, which was parked in front of Keesby's office building. Clicker Binney, the Daily Sentinel's vivacious girl photographer, was concerned about his mood, but amused also. Now, you're angry, Michael, so be careful how you drive. Uh, Watch out! Almost hit the fender of that other car. Well, why doesn't it watch where it's going? Now, what are you laughing at? What's so funny? (laughs) Oh, Michael. Michael, I love you when you're this angry. Tickle my risibilities. You tickle your own risibilities. I'm driving. <laughs> We're going to 984 Stone Avenue. When they reached the shabby apartment house, Axford and Clicker left the car and entered the vestibule. Mrs. Adams is in apartment 31. Shall we go up? No, let's look around the joint first. Oh, those walls, Michael. Are they a disgrace? Well, they haven't been painted or plastered in years. And them haven't the nerve to charge... Oh, Michael, here's an open door leading out to an alley. There are a lot of crates there. See them? Maybe they're for Keesby to make repairs he told me about. Those crates look as if they might have bathtubs in them. Maybe we'll take a peek. Oh, look at the size of the guy coming in out of the alley. A massive pumpkin-headed man entered the hallway, followed by three others equally tough-looking. What do you two want here? Get out. We're newspaper people, and we came to visit Mrs. Adams. Oh, she's here. We know that. Now, look, Bob. I'm janitor here. These guys are my assistants. If you don't beat it out of here, they'll run you out. Oh, a janitor, are you? And these are your assistants, are they? Well, listen, three chin. Hold it right there. You know who I am, do you? Yeah. You're three chin Pemberton, who used to work for Schmiggy Milton in the rum running days. And these three hoodlums are... How'd he go? All right. They'll do Michael, they'll hurt you. Let's get out of here, please. I will not. Come I... on, get going. Oh. oh, all right. But only to please you, Clicker. Come on. Axford and Clicker, followed by the four hulking hoodlums, walked back into the street. 
Axford was bridling, and Clicker tried to calm him. Now, before you do anything, Michael, why don't you call Mr. Reed and tell him what happened? It's late. It's getting dark. All right, all right. I'll give him a ring now. Uh, There's a drugstore on the next corner. Call him from there. Okay. Uh, You come along with me while I call. At that moment, in an apartment building on the opposite side of town, the stillness was suddenly shattered by a terrific explosion. And in a matter of moments, fire alarms and telephones were ringing throughout the area. Rick Reed, in his office, answered the telephone nearest to him on his desk, the phone that connected him directly with the city editor. Yes, Gunnigan. An explosion? Where? West 59th, eh? Well, say, if it's that bad, use every man available. Who? Axford? No, he hasn't called yet. When he does, I'll tell him and Miss Benny to go there. Keep me posted on the details as they come in. Mr. Reed's office? Oh, yes, Michael, just a minute. Mr. Reed, it's Michael Axford. Oh, thank you, Miss Case. Hello, Axford. Hey, whoa, whoa, slow down a bit. What's that? Repeat that part again, will you, please? Reed listened as Axford gave an account of his interview with Martin Keesby and his subsequent encounter with Three Chin Pemberton and the goons. Reed's reaction denoted concern, interest, and finally consternation. But when Axford finished his story, the immediacy of the explosion assignment became uppermost in the publisher's mind. Now, forget all about that for the time being, Axford. There's something more important on tap now. You and Miss Benny go to West 59th Street in the 800 block. An explosion has just taken place there. Commissioner Higgins stopped at the Sentinel office a few hours later on his way back from the scene of the disaster. I just want you to know that the men killed have been identified by fingerprints. They were all in the police files? Yes. And all of them had been arrested back in Prohibition days for bootlegging and traffic in alcohol. Yeah, the very thing we were talking about at noontime, huh? Exactly. We found three more stills in the building, Reed, which were not destroyed. Well, who were the men who were killed? Oh, minor hoodlums. I didn't get their names. I'll do that when I return to headquarters. I only know that all of them once were members of the old Schmiggy Milton gang. Clicker Binney reached the Sentinel office alone, turned in her pictures of the explosion, and went to Brick Reed's office. Chief, Axford didn't come back with me. I know. Gunnigan told me Axford telephoned all the details he had and was following up on an inside tip. Do you know what it is? Yes, and the police must know it by now. But when Michael received it, it was exclusive. Chief, that building where the explosion took place is managed by Martin Keithy. Keesby has left his office, and when I left Michael, he was headed for Keesby's home. You should hear from him soon. Uh, let's see, it's uh, ten minutes to ten now. Michael said he'd call you at ten sharp. Michael Axford reached Martin Keesby's house at 9.40. By the time he parked his car and inspected the house and grounds from the outside, the time was 9.55. Finally, the Sentinel reporter stood before the front door and pressed the bell. Inside the house, Keesby was talking with an unexpected visitor and was visibly nervous. But, Schmiggy, I can't admit I know anything about those stills in that house today. Your stupid bungling men were to blame. Expecting someone. 
No, no. Schmiggy, what about those trucks of yours? When will they remove those crates from the Stone Avenue premises? When the neighborhood quiets down, about midnight. I wish it could be done right now. Oh, Schmiggy, stand behind that screen while I answer the door. All right. Martin Keesby walked to the door and opened it. Yeah. So you finally answered. Oh. oh, it's you, Mr. Keesby. Just the one I came to see. Well, I've no desire to see you. Never mind. I've come to get a statement from you. Regarding what? Regarding an explosion that killed five people, that's what. An explosion in a house that you managed. I manage no houses. My firm does that. I know nothing about the explosion this evening. Nothing at all. Oh, no? And I suppose you don't know that you have a lot of police characters at 984 Stone Avenue, maltreating the public. I don't suppose you know that one of Schmiggy Milton's old gangsters, Three Chin Pemberton... I haven't the faintest idea what you're talking about. <clears throat> but I... I am interested. Come in, mister. I'll come in, all right. Hmm. Have a seat. That chair near the screen is comfortable. Keesby closed the door and, with hands behind his back, turned the key that was in the lock. He pocketed the key and walked to where Axford was seating himself. I want to know what your explanation is about there being stills in the apartments of that house where the explosion took place. There is no explanation. I knew nothing about them. Oh, no? And I suppose you tell me that you don't know about Three Chin Pemberton and those other hoodlums working for you at the Stone Avenue place. Schmiggy Milton's men they are, and that they... And what? Go on, Mr. Big Brain. Holy cow, Schmiggy Milton. Schmiggy, you blithering idiotic fool. Don't talk to me like that, Marty. I had to come out. I wasn't going to stand back and listen to this guy throw out hunks of information. I want to get all the information he knows. About me especially. I know plenty about you. So do the cops. And where should they hear about this? Nobody's going to hear what you know. Except Marty and me. We'll continue our story in just a moment. Hello there, fellas and girls. There's one word in the English language I'm sure you often use. It's the word naturally. It's natural for you to use this word when you talk about the good things of life. And naturally is the word to use when you talk about Orange Crush. Yes, because naturally it tastes better. You see, Orange Crush is made from the natural juices of sunny California. So naturally it tastes better. Better than any orange drink you ever tasted before. It's the world's leading orange drink. No other can match it for flavor. That tangy fresh fruit orange crush flavor is so refreshing and satisfying. Your very first sip tells you why we say, naturally it tastes better. Have plenty of delicious orange crush on hand to enjoy over the weekend. It's wonderful to serve with snacks when your friends drop in. Tell Mom you want Orange Crush today. Tell her it's good for you, too, that it's made from nutritious, fresh, natural orange juice. The whole family will love Orange Crush, so make sure you get enough. Buy it at your dealers in six-bottle handy packs. And always ask for it by name. Don't just say orange. Say, I want Orange Crush, because naturally, it tastes better. That's Orange Crush. O-R-A-N-G-E. C-R-U-S-H. Orange Crush. Now back to the Green Hornet. (laughs) 
Michael Axford had gone to Keesby's home to get a statement regarding the explosion that had killed three people. He ran into difficulties when Schmiggy Milton, gang leader and head of a bootleg ring, appeared unexpectedly. Schmiggy repeated what he had said. Nobody's going to hear what you know except Marty and me. I have nothing to do with this matter. Oh, no? Listen, Pops, I didn't come out of retirement and set up this million-dollar deal for you just to have you turn yellow and walk out on me. But button your lip. Let's get it straight right here now, Marty. I'm taking over. From tonight on, I'm not discussing anything with you. You're not tough enough. You're not... Schmiggy, grab him. Axford had turned suddenly and was running toward the door. Why, uh, don't shoot. He can't get out. The door's locked. Well, then come on. Axford, tugging at the doorknob vainly, turned to meet the two men who came at him. Schmiggy holding a gun in his hand. You shoot me. Grab his arms, Marty. Get away from that door. Take your hands off of me. Oh, tough. Are you okay? There. Schmiggy, you... You killed him. By hitting him with a gun like that? You're crazy. He'll be out for an hour or so, that's all. We can't leave him here. Alive or dead, we can't do that. Who said we're gonna? I came in the rear door without being seen. We'll take him out the same way. And the better we do that, the sooner the boys will be waiting with the trucks at 11 o'clock. Uh, it's five after ten now. Yeah, we got a little time then. First, we'll search this guy, see if he has anything written down. Then you and I are gonna come to an understanding. Uh, I'm concerned about this Axford man. Ah, forget about him. He's as good as taken care of. When the boys take back the stills to the hideout, they'll take him with them. They may be getting along in years, but they still know how to fix up those concrete slabs. <laughs> Just like they know how to turn out the alchemy. When 11 o'clock came and Britt Reed in his office heard no further word from Michael Axford, he turned to Lenore Case. In this case, there's absolutely no need for your staying here any longer. I don't mind, Mr. Reed. We were busy every minute until a short time ago. Yeah, but we're not busy now. So call a taxi and go home. I've been thinking about the things that happened today, and suddenly I'm beginning to see what looks like a pattern. I don't understand what you mean. Well, it started with a conversation I had with Commissioner Higgins on my way back from lunch. It took a nebulous form when Axford and Miss Benny had their set to with the hoodlums at the house where Mrs. Adams lives. Axford said this man, Three Chen, was a former member of Smiggy Milton's mob. Well, so were the five men who were killed in the explosion. Exactly. Making alcohol and stills which had been sneaked into apartments in a house managed by Martin Keesby. A man who got rid of tenants by raising their rents to a level that no one could pay. Why? Well, if you mean what I think you do, it's because... I... Mr. Reed, you mean he may intend using that house as a place for making alcohol? Why not? Bootleggers need some basis of operation. Smiggy Milton's men were all bootleggers, or criminals aligned with bootlegging business. And Milton's men are already on the Stone Avenue premises. Right. Axford may have figured things as I do. And if he did... But Mr. Reed... They might do something to him if he gives himself away. Yes, but all oh, this is surmise on my part. I don't want to notify the police until I'm sure. That's why I'm about to call Cato to meet me with the Black Beauty. The Green Hornet is going to investigate? Yes, I'm starting at 984 Stone Avenue to see what, if anything, is in the empty apartments there. Miss Case went home. A short time after a telephone call to Cato, Britt Reed walked to a dark alley near the waterfront. There, Cato was waiting at the wheel of the Black Beauty, fabulous streamlined car of the Green Hornet.
few minutes after midnight, the Green Hornet and Cato, who was masked also, left the great black car in the shadows at the end of Stone Avenue. They made their way along a back alley to the house that bore in numinous numbers above a delivery entrance, the numbers 984. Wait a second. What's it going on in that area way beside the building? The men do something there. There must be four or five of them at least. If we stay close to the wall and move without noise, maybe we get close to see what they do. Yes, those crates will mask our movements. There are quite a few of them. Come on. As they reached the protecting cover of the crate that stood at the end of the line, they could hear voices talking distinctly. Six men, including Three Chin Pemberton, stood around Schmiggy Milton as he talked to them. Now listen, my car's at the corner of the next street to the right. My partner and I'll be waiting there when you get this job done. When the trucks are loaded, drive around the corner and follow us. We'll lead you to a storehouse my partner's got picked up. Hey, what about this newspaper guy you say you got tied up in the car? Did you croak him yet? No, no, I'll leave that to you, boys. The storehouse, you can take him over and do the rest. Okay, come on now, boys, start lugging these things, huh? As the men began to work, Schmiggy Milton left Three Chin Pemberton in charge of the group carrying the crates from alley to truck. The Green Hornet and Cato had heard everything. They ran to the rear of the alley, still unseen, and talked briefly. We'll get Smeggy before he turns the corner to go to his car. The way he talk, men in car is maybe Mr. Axford. Yes, we'll have to be careful when we move in on the car. We don't want trouble with Smeggy's partner. But we don't want Axford to recognize us either. Mm, I know. We take care. We run now, be at end of street when Crook reach corner. Schmiggy Milton, nearing the corner of Stone Avenue, stopped to look back at the figures of his henchmen loading the truck. Suddenly, from an area away, two figures darted at him. Hey, Schmiggy reached for his gun. Too slow, Schmiggy. It's a green... <laughs> Hold him for an hour. We'll drag him back and leave him in the hedge. Okie dokie. <clears throat> Let's get to his car before the trucks come. Will you stay in car, Mr. Britton? Yes. Until we get to the storehouse or until the police move in on the trucks. You'll be ready to pick me up at any time at the Black Beauty. But let's get to the car in the next corner. Martin Keesby, nervous and jumpy in the front seat of Schmiggy's car, turned once more to look at the figure of Michael Axford, gagged and trussed up on the back seat. Suddenly there was a banging against the left side of the automobile. Keesby turned to look outside. At that moment, the door on the right side opened, and a figure slid in beside him, pressing a gun against his back. Move an inch and I shoot you. No, 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 don't shoot me. You're the Green Hornet, aren't you? Aren't you? What do you want with me? The Green Hornet, silent but menacing, held his gun hand steady as Cato opened the rear door and pulled Axford out onto the sidewalk. The scene became a tableau for a few minutes, with scarcely a movement from the four men in and next to the car. The first truck appeared at the corner of Stone Street as Cato stooped with a knife in his hand to cut the ropes that bound Axford. The Green Hornet spoke low to Keesby. Start moving. Let those cars follow you. We're going on to the storehouse. I'm taking Smiggy's place. You are? I didn't know about this. Where's Smiggy? You'll find out. Start moving. Signal for the trucks to uh, follow. Yes. There. I gave the signal. Hornet, look. The man who's with you is running away. He's leaving Axford free on the street. That's what he's supposed to do. Now start. Yes, yes, I'm starting. Keep that gun away. You don't need to use it on me. I may, if you don't tell me the things I want to know. Schmiggy's holding out on me. You you and Schmiggy were partners and he's holding out on you? Put it that way. 
I think that's what he plans to do to me. Hold it, if you and I were Keep to... driving and keep talking. I'm interested in your proposition. You're about to make one, aren't you? Uh, yes. Yes, I'll tell you what it is. Michael Axford massaged the numbness from his legs and watched in wide-eyed fascination as the Green Hornet rode off with Keesby. He saw the trucks follow the lead car. Then, heading towards Stone Avenue, he muttered to himself, Glory be. I escaped with my life anyway. Now I'd better get to a phone and call Commissioner Higgins and the cops. Then I'll call the paper. Holy cow. There's a dead man in the bushes. Oh, let me take a look. Glory be. It's Smiggy Milton. And he's dead to the world. I'll go back and get the ropes they had me tied up with, and I'll use them on him. Then I'll call the cops. Commissioner Higgins and police cars, in response to Axford's call, sped to Stone Avenue. They placed Schmicky under arrest on Axford's charge, and then started off in the direction taken by the Green Hornet and the trucks. Axford, sitting with Commissioner Higgins, began to pour out the story of all he'd learned that evening about Keesby and Schmicky. Commissioner, they're partners. Oh. They used the empty apartments to set up their alcohol cookers. Then they put in filters to take out the smell of the mash. Good work, Axford. The Green Hornet, playing for time, had Martin Keesby drive slowly as the crooked real estate manager outlined his plans for making a fortune. And now, with Schmiggy out of the way, we'll take over all his equipment and pay off his gang members at our rate. I suppose the owners of the apartment houses you've managed get wise to what you're doing. I'll handle them. Oh, nice guy, aren't you? Well, I see my car driving up past the trucks. The police must be coming. The police? Yes, yeah, stop the car. Here's what? where I leave you. You... I'll stop it then. There. Now, here's your gas. Oh. <laughs> oh, hurry. A police car has come. Not far behind now. Hurry. Get going, Cato. Everything's under control. <laughs> the police cars arrived on the scene in a matter of minutes. They shot over the heads of the hoodlums who had stopped their trucks behind Keesby's car. All right, keep your hands high, all of you. Men, handcuff them. Place drivers on the trucks. Commissioner, one of these crates is open. It has a still in it. They all do. I told you that, Commissioner. And speaking of still, look how still our pal Keesby is there in the front seat. Too bad we got here too late to steal that other scallywag, the Green Hornet. Hey, what am I talking about? He's the one who saved me life. Hornet escapes. That's the last three steps.
that's the Green Hornet story for today. Another exciting story brought to you by the most refreshing drink in the world. The drink that's actually good for you because it's made with real oranges. The one and only Orange Crush. It sparkles, it tingles, it makes you feel fresh again. Always keep several bottles in your refrigerator. And always remember, the handy way to do that is to get the handy pack. Six bottles of Orange Crush in a handy carrying case. This program is a feature of the Green Hornet Incorporated, created by George W. Trendle, produced by Trendle Campbell Muir Incorporated, directed by Charles D. Livingston, and edited by Fran Stryker. The part of the Green Hornet is played by Jack McCarthy. This copyrighted feature originates in Detroit, and all characters, places, and incidents used are fictitious. The Green Hornet is brought to you every Wednesday and Friday at the same time by the most refreshing drink in the world, Orange Crush. That's the drink you like best of all. Try it. Next time, ask for Orange Crush. But remember, don't say orange. Say Orange Crush. O-R-A-N-G-E-C-R-U-S-H. Orange Crush. Next Wednesday, listen to the Green Hornet again in the exciting story of danger entitled The Cigarette Filters. And now till Wednesday, this is Fred Foy saying so long from Orange Crush. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.